Welcome to Going Deep, sports in the 21st century on Blue Ridge Public Radio. I'm Dr. Marsha Mount Shoup. And I'm Coach John Shoup. John's coached at the highest levels of the game of football for 26 years. And Marsha is an author, theologian, and minister. And we're glad you've joined us to go deep into some of the most pressing issues of our time. On Going Deep, we go beyond the sound bites and highlight reels. This episode of Going Deep, we are thrilled to have a dear friend of ours. One of the gifts of a life in sports are the people, the people that are kind of like family to us that we've just met and we've, we're kindred spirits. Um, and so we welcome today Natalie Graves. She is here to help us go deep um, around our conversation of mental health and sports. Um She hails from Chicago, and she is here to help us learn more about what it looks like on the ground to support athletes in their mental health. So welcome, Natalie, and I'd love for you to introduce yourself to our listeners, tell them a little bit about you and and your practice and what you do. All right. Well, I, I first I have to just say thank you so much for having me. Uh, you guys are some of my favorite people, and it is really, really an honor to catch up, but not only to catch up, but to talk about this topic that is near and dear to my heart. So uh, I'm just just happy, happy, happy to be here. Um, but a little bit about me. Uh, I am born, raised, and educated in Chicago. Um, I... And have a private practice where I specialize in working with athletes at all levels. Uh, youngest athlete right now is 12 years old, a gymnast. I work with high school uh, athletes, college D1, D2, D3, professional athletes. Uh, I have two Olympic hopefuls on the caseload right now, uh, along with retired athletes. And that would include male, female, um, independent and, and uh, group sports. And my focus is not just performance, but that is a part of what I do, but the mental health side of athletes as well. Um, Because I believe in working with athletes, we have to look at the whole person. And so that is a big focus in what I do. And um, I do some speaking uh, nationally and internationally, working on a few projects. And uh, I'm just all things mental health and sports, and my favorite, favorite top, um, title, I'm a sports social worker. Yes, ma'am. That's why we love you. And, <laughs> so. and, and when we were in Chicago, you were a Chicago fan. So that was good, too. <laughs> yes, yes. All things Chicago, for sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, one of the things that we've been trying to sort out in this world of COVID, we certainly realized I'm I'm teaching at a high school right now. And I help sometimes coach with the football team. But even our daughter, who's a a high school athlete right now, and our son, a a professional athlete, is trying to figure out that sweet spot. You know, competitive sports during COVID has been a problem. (laughs) It's been it's been hard in so many ways because Sports can be a mental release and be very helpful to athletes and can benefit 
people in so many ways, chemically uh, with endorphins and physically, spiritually in so many ways. But it also can work the opposite way. And I wonder if in youth sports, in college sports, and even in professional sports on the different levels, if you can kind of help us navigate trying to find that sweet spot in competitiveness where it's healthy and still gets the juices flowing and is beneficial, but it's fragile too and doesn't tilt over the edge. Can I add a little bit to that question? Of course. The, so this for me, cause I'm, I'm coaching high school cross country. I'm coaching our daughter, but the, um, and all those years we spent in football and, and I was a collegiate athlete. Our son is now a professional athlete. The sweet spot where it doesn't tip over into this life diminishing reality because there's so much pressure. Um, there's so much stress. There's so much tension. There's so much, there's so many expectations. Um, like the better you get at something, the more people expect of you. And it seems like we're seeing with some elite athletes these days, they're really saying, well, that I've, I've had enough. I'm, I want to set a boundary. This is no longer life-giving for me. I need a break. How do you find that sweet spot? I, I love that term, the sweet spot, because that, that is really, really what it is. What the, the, the term I use is finding the balance, but, but we're talking about the same thing. So, so, you know, John, when you said, you know, sports is this wonderful thing um, in so many ways. Um, but then there's this other side of sports, though, that we don't always acknowledge. And the expectation is really um, a big part of some of the, the issues that start to come up. Um, athletes put expectations on themselves already. And then you have the teammates and you have the coaches and you have the fans and you have social media. And so trying to find that sweet spot, trying to find that balance is really imperative to really keep you healthy mentally and to help you continue to perform because there's a lot of noise out there. And it's not just distracting, it can be destructive, right? And so we really have to, um, teach our athletes on all levels, you know, when to kind of cut things out, shut things down. Sometimes we have to go into tunnel vision. And sometimes we have to actually evaluate where we are currently. And do we need to take a pause? Do we need to take a break? Do we need to do something different for the athlete's mental health? And I think we're finally starting to talk about this. We're starting to have real conversations about it because for many, many, many years, for so long, athletes weren't even looked at as human. They were machines that just had to go and perform and entertain. But that's just the small piece of what an athlete is. And so, you know, this this mental health piece and talking about the sweet spot and balancing, if we continue to ignore 
then we're going to constantly see some of these issues that are really coming to the forefront right now. And and I I am really um, I've been very outspoken with um, a lot of the things that have happened over this past summer um, with with a lot of these elite athletes. And I'm sure we'll get into that. But we have to create a culture in sports that allows folks to be human. And I am big on asking for help is a strength. It's never a weakness. I try to constantly send that message. And so when we're trying to find the balance, when we're trying to find that weak spot, specifically when it becomes a job, when it becomes no longer fun, when it is weighing on you heavy, we need to take a pause and evaluate is should we continue to do this? And, and particularly, I see this in youth sports, not just on the collegiate and professional level. You know, I, I wrote a blog years ago about, I think, something like do's and don'ts with parents, sports parents. And it is surprising that athletes at the age, many athletes, by, by the time they get to 15 years old, 14, 15, between 13 and 15, I believe, they will leave their sport because of the pressure. And so if we think about that, a sport that kids love, they are walking away, running away in some cases because it is just no longer entertaining. So many um, situations where I have met with athletes and when they have a moment to themselves and it's just he and I or she and I, and we really began to talk about the love of the sport, I've heard many times it's a job. It's not fun anymore. And I'm talking high school level. And so if we're at the point where our young athletes are feeling like this is a heavy duty task, we have to step back and say, do we need to do something different? Do we need to um, have a conversation? Do we need to reevaluate how we're how we're interacting with our athletes how are we communicating with our athletes because sometimes just because we love them and we love the sport we may say things that put more pressure on them and i know that because i'm in a sports family and i've had to you know go to my family members and say you know what let's pull that back he doesn't need to hear that right now you know he he just lost the game let's pull it back You know, and so we have to start thinking about, you know, how are we interacting with our athletes? How are they feeling game in and game out? How are they feeling during practice? You know, and and if there are some things that are coming up, we don't brush it off. We've got to take a pause and talk about it. I think you bring up a lot of there's a lot of things (laughs) that you're saying there. And I want to kind of go back to one thing that you said at the beginning. And when we were in Chicago and I was the offensive coordinator of the Chicago Bears, it was, you know, from, uh, we were at Chicago from 98 to 2003. And it's really right as the internet was starting to take off in chat rooms and in the social media type of criticism. Yeah, And it was really hard on me I remember as a young offensive coordinator it really beat me up and people would often say to me well you just you can't listen to that but it's really hard not to even if you're not on the computer following it I mean it's hitting you 
at restaurants, at traffic lights, at stops, at yeah. home, in different places. And so what are ways that here 20 years later, the social media thing is uh, increased exponentially. Exactly. So what ways do you tell young athletes or even older athletes, how do you get in that tunnel? Yeah, it is. It is easier said than done. And and I will say uh, before I go into it, John, we could use you on the bears right now, but that that's a whole <laughs> different conversation that I would love to have. Don't say that but, too loud. Don't say, yeah, this won't, this won't go well in Chicago. Although, I think the last, still a cuss word in some well, parts of Chicago. Well, now in 2001, we went 13 and three and they haven't been. Well, honey, I'm not since. saying it's, I'm not saying it should be, but I'm we just, know how people are. I like what uh, Naomi Osaka said. Um, she has a Twitter account and she will tweet and she will totally delete her her uh, account. Not her account, but she'll delete it off her phone. And Naomi Osaka, just so our listeners know, is the young tennis player withdrew from the uh, French Open. We actually talked some about her in our last episode. I'm Absolutely. sorry, Natalie, please yeah. go on. Yeah, for sure. Uh, she may be ranked number three, number four in the world right now. Um, um, yeah, so so and gets a lot of criticism for a lot of different reasons. And um, I thought that was very clever that she still, you know, this generation grew up with social media. That is a part of their life. They're not going to stop doing that. And I don't think that's a realistic expectation. But I love that she she'll she'll tweet and then she'll delete it. And so she cuts the access of any of the fallout. So I, I like that idea. Um, when athletes are um, training uh, preseason, I encourage them to take a social media break um, to quiet the noise while we're preparing to uh, get ready for the task at hand. That that's that's another thing. Um, I think, John, you said something that is very real. It's there. You even if you're not trying to hear it, you may just get a notification that pushes through on your phone and you'll read something that's very real. And so we do have to put it in perspective. Social media has given permission for people to say whatever they want, anytime they want, want but they normally wouldn't do this if we were face to face. And so we have to put it in perspective of this is just noise. It's an opinion. And I don't have to feed into that. I don't have to give it power because when we spend the time reading it, responding, and I'm talking specifically the negative, the toxic, the destructive stuff, right? You know, when we're giving our energy to that, we're, we're giving it breath to breathe. Sometimes you just have to say, you know what, that's what they said. Keep it moving. And I would really encourage don't look at it. But you do have to understand as an athlete today, you are going to get detractors, haters, people saying things on your social media. And you have to be able to put it in perspective. That is now a new expectation that athletes have to be able to to handle that we, you know, they didn't have that many years ago, but that's part of it now. Uh, and we see some of the challenges. Uh, I, I'm a big tennis fan. And so um, a tournament, Sloane Sloan Stevens, who's an American tennis player, she was so upset because she's reading all the negative um, tweets and responses after a loss. 
And I immediately thought, where's the team to say, you know what? Let's stop doing that. Because when we take that in, you know, it becomes part of psychologically how we're thinking or it will affect how we're thinking. And so we have to really, I think the athletes, but the stakeholders, the community around them, you know, we have to do a better job of saying we have to shut some of this stuff down, put it in its place, but we shouldn't be giving it the breath and the energy to thrive. I think we should just, we know it's out there and just keep going, do the job at hand. Because when I feel, when you're putting your energy into looking at those things, as I say, when you're looking to the right, when you're looking at the, to the left, you're not looking forward. So you're not focused. And so I try to convey, let's focus on what's the job at hand. And anything that distracts, it takes away from the performance and possibly could have some challenges with the mental health. We'll be right back with more Going Deep on Blue Ridge Public Radio and our guest, Natalie Graves, an athletic counselor from the city of Chicago. You're listening to Going Deep on Blue Ridge Public Radio, and our guest is Natalie Graves, an athletic counselor from the city of Chicago. There are there's social media and there's the haters. And then there are all these other ways that athletes are constantly having to compare themselves to yes. others. And, and with young women run, doing distance running, it's a lot around weight, body image, yes. and, you know, all their times go on mile split, all their workouts go on Strava. And they're constantly like comparing themselves to other people. Oh, look, she ran this much mileage. Literally some of the girls on the team will just keep running for a few more minutes just so they get the same mileage as some other girl on another team, you know? And I, and I tell them, I say some of the stuff you're saying, but it, it's, it's kind of a losing battle because Mm -hmm. that's a part of their identity now. That's like, how they build relationships is this, is this comparing thing, this. And so then their, their minds are constantly kind of thinking about what I'm not, what I'm not, what I need to get to get there. Now with some players, it's, I need to get a scholarship. This is my way to get to college. But, but like with, with cross country and track where, you know, scholarships aren't as plentiful as they are in some other sports, but I mean, part of it is just our competitive culture. And I'm wondering as somebody who's up close to human beings who are really struggling with identity or self-worth or just a sense of well-being, like, is there a way for competition in our current culture to be a healthy thing? I, I, I want to, I want to say yes. I really want to say yes, badly. Um, but there's a lot of challenges. Um, and you, you're, you're right with the, with the comparing of the times, um, 
you know, in bodybuilding, you know, comparing of, you know, who's lifting what, you know, it's, it's always <clears throat> something that, that the athletes are looking at. And um, I think it's uh, um, part of the, the negative of social media. There's a lot of positives. And, and when we're talking about the comp- competition of it, there's so many wonderful things with competition and sports. And I want to believe that those will outweigh the things that we're talking about with the comparison. I, I think it's very important um, when we're working with athletes that we also develop the person. <clears throat> A lot of um, athletes' identity is solely with their sport. And I am a believer that if we were to encourage and foster other things about the individual, that helps with their confidence and their self-image and how they see themselves as not just a sprinter, not just a soccer player, but I also do this well and I get good grades or I sing well or, you know, I, I always, when, when I do, um, my intake, when I first meet an athlete and I go through my assessment process, one of the questions I ask, what are your interests outside of sports? And that's very deliberate that I ask that because although we want our athletes to thrive and do well and compete hard, if that's the only thing they're focused on and if something happens whether it's an injury or, you know, there's, it didn't work out, they didn't start, they didn't get recruited, whatever. To put the pieces back together of who they are is very, very challenging. And so I really like to say you're, you're an athlete and what? Because you're not just that. And so I think if programs began to, you know, have some things that with the athletes that are totally not related to sports at all, if that's even possible a half a day and we're just doing this, you know, we're just sitting around talking about catching up or, you know, kind of encouraging that other part of the athlete to come out. Because if it's just about the competition, if it's just about the performance, what happens when that's done? What happens? And I can tell you from my work, it's a challenge trying to find out who you are after the crowd has stopped calling your name after you're no longer a part of a brotherhood or a sisterhood of of a team. And so I think some of the work has to be that it is okay not to just be an athlete, to be an athlete and. And and I think we could do some things around that to encourage um, an embracing of other parts of ourselves. You know, I I think that's the way. I also feel that building confidence in other areas um, is, a, is another way, you know, really kind of highlighting other talents that they don't even realize a lot of times that they have, you know. And so these are little things compared to kind of the major stuff that we're combating. But we I think we have to do those little things. They're important. I think it's really interesting that you talk about being an athlete and both and world because it's been my experience in college football and in professional football the coaches that I've worked with were very intentional about trying to force players to keep blinders on 
the last thing we wanted uh, or many staffs wanted or many coaches I know wanted was for someone to have an outside interest or be distracted. It was almost like we were the Spartan culture where you weren't allowed to talk to other people. And how does this show up in college? Well, it showed up with coaches chose every class that you took. So you could be at workouts and practices when you needed to be, regardless of what you wanted to take. (laughs) We were going to do what was in the interest of the team. And it also showed up in ways of dictating what players can and can't say to the media, what they can and can't do outside of football and even class, i.e. like going on a, a weekend trip. Everything is scheduled, even in the off season. I mean, in the off season, a college football player's job is six days a week still. There's no three or four day weekend where you're going away. And what I'm saying is that has been in my experience, very intentional to keep players contained for a couple of reasons. One, so they focus on football and two, so the coaches don't get in trouble if players get in trouble themselves. But what I'm hearing is, and it's something that I always believed and tried to do was, You'll probably be have better performance as a player if you loosen those reins a little bit and uh, don't try to micromanage every day of an athlete's uh, schedule. And I, I see that in college, and sadly, I see it some in high school as well. Yeah, you know, think about it. it it's considered a distraction if an athlete has another interest in addition to their sport. That, that's a distraction. You're right. Th- think about that for a second. That's a true statement that you just said with college athletes and, and pro athletes even that I've worked with. That's crazy. Right, right. And, and I think that we have to kind of re, rethink how we're approaching athletes at all levels. You know, do we want them as just one trick pony this is all they know this is all they think about this is all they can talk about or do we want them to have a very diverse and open interest you know um um the the famous quote uh from a sports uh someone on um uh, one of the cable news show you know shut up and dribble you know, I, I don't want my athletes to just shut up and dribble. I want them to use their voice. I want them to use their mind. I want them to share their perspective. And that's a good thing. And I think when we are when we allow the brain to actually learn in different ways, it all it actually enhances when you focus on something. You know, but Amen. We, yeah, we we just gotta we've gotta reinvent how we we're doing this thing if we're really about helping athletes excel on and off in and out of the, the sport. this both-and approach, it will enhance it. It, it, We're not in 
70 anymore. I mean, the world's right. different yeah. right now. It's, and the world is very complex from yes, 1970. Right. Woody, Woody Hayes and Bo Schembechler no longer coach in the Big right. Ten. It's a, it's a different world. Well, but the most important learning, I feel like that maybe coaches will start to download is it's diminishing returns. At some point, right. you're going to get what happened with Simone Biles, where she's like, it's the Olympics, but I ain't competing today because I don't want to die. Yeah. You know, like it should never have to get there to that place. But if coaches can start to see if a coach at a high level, because it's a business and those coaches don't want to get fired. I mean, it's all connected, you know. But if coaches can start to see, oh, we'll actually have more sustainability. They won't get injured as much. They'll perform better. They'll encourage their teammates. Like all of this is part of a success plan. (laughs) Then they'll do it. Right. What I I often say to coaches, um, because winning is – um, their focus. And, and, you know, it is a business and, you know, it is, we're talking about their livelihood. And so what, what I try to explain to coaches, um, is that if they're allowed to be their best self outside of their sport, they will do well in their sport and that will help you win. And so now we're all winning. We're performing well. The team is doing well. They're doing well outside of the sport. And that's the holistic that I'm hoping that we'll we'll really start to adopt more. But we do have to understand it is a business. And if it is perceived that this will affect the bottom line, folks will not be open to it. But if we can explain about well-being, and how that's connected to performance, there's a door that can be cracked open and a conversation can happen, an introduction of programming and and folks that do my work, working with athletes can get in there and provide that support and those other things that are needed. And and I will say, um, we're we're now at a time where, where before where I have to convince a lot of folks of what I'm doing and how it's needed and it's important, mm-hmm. people are calling me. Coaches are calling me. Programs are calling me um, to say we need some support. Our athletes need some support. We actually want you to talk to our coaches. You know, these are universities that are now reaching out that n- n- four years ago, Five years ago, that wasn't happening. I mean, I was really having to explain in detail and, and you know, go through this whole thing. But mm-hmm. it, there is a shift happening. Now, is it where we need it to be? Well, no, we're not there. But I am definitely seeing some changes that I never thought I would have an athletic director or a social associate uh, director call me and say, you know, mm-hmm. can you help our athletes? That's that's new. So what would you attribute that to? I think I think the culture is getting um, more aware of mental health. I think it was the summer we had with the uh, injustice and athletes were feeling that uh, deeply. It was in their communities. It was people that looked a majority like them. I think it's COVID. Um, There was a lot of isolation. And we know with isolation, we get uh, we, we're, we're at risk for other mental challenges. Uh, and then when it was time to return, there was a there was an increase of anxiety with performance. So I think it was some of that. Um, 
I think we cannot underestimate when uh, professional athletes begin to speak out about their own mental health challenges, mm-hmm. how, how that really impacts um, organizations and programs and schools and individual athletes. Um, I will tell you, uh, when um, Simone Biles, the gymnast, the Olympic gymnast, um, mm-hmm. who had to put a pause on her performance at the Olympics, when that happened, in that week, two athletes on my caseload walked away from their sport. Wow. Um, and I cannot ignore that during this time when she did that, that this started to come up. And I think she gave athletes permission to say, it is okay to put my mental health first. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so, so when professional athletes, elite athletes um, speak up and they take a stand or they just decide to take care of themselves, um, I think programs begin to really take heed, take note. And then it's also, guys, it's really about understanding that there is help, there is support. You know, I specialize in working with just athletes. There are, I'm not the only one who does that. So like also educating folks, parents, coaches, programs, that there are specialized clinicians out here that can do preventative work. Let's not even get to the intervention. Let's be preventative, right? So that we can provide the support and all the things that is needed to help our athletes perform and when something happens let's have someone in place you define yourself as like an a- athletic counselor i wonder if that has a less I don't know if taboo is the right word, but it might be kind of name than like a psychiatrist. If I'm going to see an athletic counselor, I feel like I'm almost going to see a mental health coach. You refer to yourself often as a coach. If I were to say I'm going to see a psychiatrist, a psychologist or, 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 or something that might have a different... I don't know what feel, I guess, is the word. Are you finding that what you call yourself is meaningful? No, John, you're you're tapping into something really um, that I was really conscious of. The name of my practice is Natalie Gray's Athletic Counseling. And I purposely used the word counseling. I didn't say therapy. And I took a moment and thought, what would be approachable? What what would be the least threatening title name that athletes, coaches, athletes, parents could, could, could reach out to? And I was very purposeful in thinking that because stigma in sports is very, very real. And so if we're to, and when I say we, mental health professionals, clinicians who want to do this work, if we want to do this, we have to be able to speak the language of athletes and we have to be approachable. 
And so, um, yes, there is a lot of uh, taboo with, you know, using the word psychology, um, psychiatrists and, and such. You know, I, I spoke at a, a professional um, symposium. I won't, I won't say which one. And I wasn't allowed to say mental health or mental illness. Hmm. I was brought in to talk about these things. Wow. But I, I wasn't allowed to say the words I had to say wellness, you know. And so, um, yes, Johnny, it, it, it definitely there is some stigma there. A lot of times, you know, when when I um, when folks call me, you know, I, I ask them to call me by my first name. You know, I, I don't get into all the titles and, you know. It's, it's great to have receipts and I got receipts. That's fine. But I'm going to tell you, athletes are not interested in what's behind your name. It's what's in your heart and what can you do to help them. And so we have to have a mentality of meeting athletes where they are and get them in the room or in my case, virtually <laughs> to, to be able to sit down and deal with it. And if I can't get you in front of me, we can't do anything. We can't do any work. So being approachable. Yeah, it's it, John. It's definitely it's so important because people are, are, are you know, searching and they can just swipe away and, and never even think about it. You know, but if you feel often folks will say, you know, something about how you said something, it just kind of I connected with it. Well, it's important that we understand that. And I emphasize this, John, for a reason. Athletes are less likely to reach out for help than their non-athlete counterparts. Hmm. They are more likely to struggle with a mental health challenge than their, on the college level than their non-athlete counterparts. And they're least likely to reach out for help. So these things matter about relatability. Can I connect? Can I relate? You know, what does it mean if this title or that title? You know, I try to kind of get past all that and say, it's about me and you. What do we need to do? What do you need? You're listening to Going Deep, Sports in the 21st Century. Our guest today is Natalie Graves, a sports social worker. Welcome back to Going Deep, where we're going to continue our conversation with Natalie Graves, a sports social worker from Chicago, Illinois. It's funny because I think sometimes to myself, I don't know if you've watched The Sopranos, but we over COVID, we watched The Sopranos. But we just anyhow, needed to feel more depressed about humanity. The, That's all. His friend, the people that he worked with, when they found out that he was seeing a psychiatrist, a, a shrink, that the language of that made him very vulnerable, made him very scared. And I can remember leaning over to Marsha saying, "That's just like the NFL. He, he ought to just be seeing not a shrink, not a psychiatrist. He ought to." Just be talking to a friend, you know, call, call it something, call it something else. And yeah. uh, I think language is important. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you. Well, especially if athletes can say this is this is helping my performance. Like I'm exactly. like a sports psychologist. It's there to it's a performance enhancement instead right. of like I'm struggling. So I need some help. 
I remember as a young coach, I was just 26 coaching quarterbacks at Carolina Panthers, and Steve Berline was a quarterback who was, I think he was six years older than me at the time, and he was on our team. And I remember the first day I met him, he sat me down and he said, listen, I'm going to treat you with respect, do everything. I know I'm older than you. He said, this is the only thing, though. You have to help me get better. If you can help me get better, I'll do anything that you tell me to do. But if you ain't helping me get better, then it's not going to work out. And I feel like athletic counselors, sports you know, mental coaches can really wellness coaches can help players get better. And isn't right. that what players want to do? Yeah. Can we Marsh, can we shift gears here just a bit, Natalie, because uh, I saw in the news in Chicago, you did a really chock full informative piece on, well, the abuses that were going on in the state of Michigan. As we know, yeah. Dr. Larry Nasser was the doctor at Michigan State. And just recently, uh, 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 Simone Biles and many of the world's greatest gymnasts uh, just spoke in Washington uh, about the, the issues that Dr. Nasser abused all these athletes for so many years and how it went undetected. And then additionally, at the University of Michigan, Dr. Robert E. Anderson uh, had been working with athletes at the University of Michigan from 1966 yep. to yep. 2003. And much of what had, and he's now since passed, but much of the abuses that he was having with athletes are just coming to light now. Mm -hmm. And you talked wonderfully about everything from red flags to look for or how uh, coaches and parents can be more aware about issues of abuse and the courage to speak out. Because there's also, with regards to Michigan, not Michigan State, but Michigan with Dr. Anderson, there's an element that's a little bit odd because these are male athletes in these in football and wrestling who are having to speak out about it. And it's just an added element in this hyper-masculine culture of a fear to speak out. And I got to believe that has to do with why this lasted for so long and we're not even hearing about it until the doctor has passed. You know, in my, in my early work um, out of grad school, I worked with uh, neglected and abused girls and, um, and so on a lot of different levels. And so um, I take, I take um, talking about this and when these things come up, I, I take it so deeply because I think about those survivors and those young girls that I worked with many years ago and, and, and um, the impacts of sexual abuse, how it impacted them. We first have a problem with talking about sexual assault, sexual abuse, um, rape. We as a society, we have a problem with addressing that when it happens. Something goes on where often the first response is to minimize it or deny it. Not all the time, but a lot of cases, it is minimization or denying it or blaming the victim. 
So if we're if we're starting from a premise like that, it is very hard for victims, survivors to speak up and report. The second thing that we need to understand, it is a power dynamic when someone abuses, assaults another person. It is usually an adult to a child, a doctor to a patient, um, you know, a parent. It's, it's a power dynamic. And so um, it, that makes it also difficult for a, a victim or say survivor to speak out. Um, a lot of times the um, perpetrators, offenders will make their um, victims even more vulnerable, see them alone, take them away from their social circle, see them after the family has left, get access, right? And so it is created so that victims can't speak out. So we have to first understand that. The second thing is that we have to be upfront and down, dirty, honest about this. Um, I, I was asked, um, when should you start talking to your children about sexual abuse or, or sexual assault? And I said four or five years old. And that may shock someone. But at four or five, children are beginning to communicate and they're being handed off oftentimes to other adults or other mm -hmm. systems, schools, preschools and that. We have to incorporate, just like we're talking about washing our hands and being polite and all the other things we talk about, we also have to teach children about keeping their bodies safe and what that looks like. Now, you know, in the past, it used to be, you know, well, it's okay for a doctor to do this. Well, we have, you know, these horrific, no longer doctors, but were doctors at the time, right? you know, abusing their, their, their um, title and having access to young people. And in, in some cases, adults, but it was a leverage with, with uh, Dr. Anderson, some of the, the players, they, they, they wanted, um, they needed a letter or they needed <clears throat> something from him. So that doctor had leverage over that player. So there's a dynamic there. So we have to, in our sports programs, in our homes, we have to talk openly about it and not wait until something happens, but start talking about what's okay, what's not okay, and let's talk about it very openly. This is nothing to be ashamed of. And to demonize the horrific behavior. We should not tiptoe around it. When we tiptoe, it gives an idea of consent when we're quiet. And so I am a big believer in speaking the truth about things that are very uncomfortable. I call them the tough talks. But we're talking about our children. We're talking about young adults. We're talking about vulnerable young ladies and young men. And we need to be real about the predators that are out there. And so when we, when we talk about the mas uh, masculinity of some sports, for an example, a football or wrestling, it makes it even that much more difficult to report, to say something, because the question becomes, 
before they even tell anyone, they start to, what's wrong with me? Why did I let it happen? Why did they pick me? You know, what will people say? What will I be labeled? A victim is saying this. And so we have to turn this around and say, no, it's not, it's not you that has to be questioned. It's the monster who were preying on our kids. We have not gotten there yet. I am very, very, um, very passionate about this because those young girls, when I first started out my first job, that stays with me, the challenges they had of their abuses. And, and so um, I believe that um, in um, organizations, in um, all levels, we need to be having conversations and teaching our athletes who to report things to. You know, just like I was saying about explaining to athletes who they need to talk to when they're having some challenges mentally or need some help with performance, who do they report somebody to? That's not being discussed. You know, if something happened with a trainer or a doctor or a coach, who do I go to? Who can I talk? Who's the safe person? Those conversations aren't happening. And that is a big deficit. And it, it creates um, risk for these kids. You know, and, and, and I'll, I'll pause here with this last thought. With the gymnasts, with Nasser, some of these young girls were like nine, eight, mm-hmm. 10 years old. They didn't even know what an exam was. And so they didn't even have the understanding of if that they were being violated. So we have to do a better job as parents, um, as you know, I call it uh, sports stakeholders like we are um, to to really do some educating and really um, changing the culture of of being silent um, when we're talking about uh, victimization of people. One thing that I have thought since we went through what we went through at UNC, it wasn't sexual abuse, but it was power abuse um, where players just were thrown under the bus with no due process, no advocacy. Since that all happened, I've really thought there needs to be somebody in every university who is an ombudsman for athletes. They do not work for the university. They're there without a dog in the fight, but that's who you go to. Right. (laughs) If you have tried to report, because like, look what happened at Penn State. Look what happened with the gymnasts. They did report. Right. They did report to people. Systems failed them. That's right. That's right. The systems failed them. And not only that, there were people in positions of power that had a vested interest in that not being a problem. If you have this an ombudsman, somebody who is an advocate for athletes, that's their purpose. And if an athlete goes to them, it's confidential. They can ask a question. It's not going to affect their playing time. It's not going to affect their scholarship, but they can go and talk to somebody and get advice about what do I do? This happened, you know, and like your clients have you to talk to. But it's like every university needs a Natalie Graves, like who's there for the 
for all athletes in the structure of the institution, but not answering to the coach, not answering to the athletic director, because the dynamic, it's just a setup. It's a setup, especially in division one revenue sports, where there is so much riding on Mm -hmm. everything looking like it's okay. And I I remember talking to the chancellor at UNC about this. I talked to the athletic director about this. There needs to be an ombudsman. There needs to be somebody, oh, well, there is blah, blah, blah. You know, they tried to tell me, well, this person does that. No, that person, you hired that person. Right. That person is your friend. Yeah. They're never going to go against you. No matter what, that you hired them because they're loyal to you. That's what football is all about. Right. That's exactly right. So I think we need to clone Natalie and have (laughs) and place a Natalie at every division one sports program and have an independent funding source to pay for all of the salaries for those people, because there's so much going on in those division one programs so much, whether it be, I, I can't take the classes I want to, or I am not, I don't, I'm hungry. I don't have the food that I need, or they didn't, they didn't follow through on their promises about my scholarship or whatever, right. Right. or sexual. I feel, like the, I feel like the assistant coach is mistreating me, but who do I talk to? Who do I that? talk to? Well, I wonder Natalie, if in, In closing here, uh, could you paint a picture for us of what a healthy athlete (laughs) does look like, you know? Yeah. So, you know, we talked about a lot of heavy, heavy stuff today, but we can't um, not mention um, what a positive experience and what, what healthy athletes physically, mentally, um, emotionally looks like. And I I think, I think that's a great way to end. Um, you know, I always like to explain that being healthy doesn't mean that you don't have challenges, Mm -hmm. that everything is perfect. It means that you're just dealing with it. Right. So, you know, the word healthy, you know, it's kind of relative what what it, what one thinks it is, maybe someone else thinks. But, you know, if you're enjoying your sport, if you're trying to compete at your best level, if you love the competition, you're in a great place. When you are coaching and, you know, even in the hard times, this is exactly where you want to be. You're in a great space, Right. Um, when you're showing um, support to your teammates or your opponents, or when you're um, showing leadership skills, um, empathy, you know, you're right where you need to be in a sports environment. And, you know, it's, it's okay when it gets tough. It's okay when a challenge comes up. It's okay if, you know, you didn't get it quite right this, this last time. We just get back up and we do it again or we ask for some help so people can support us. That's what healthy is. Right. You know, and and most of the athletes that that reach out, you know, it's it's one thing, you know, you know, 
as maybe confidence or, you know, he or she doesn't look right in practice and that would, you know, and, and I always like to pull back and just say, let's just, let's just deal with the whole person and build that person up in the most positive way. And, and the athletic piece, the performance piece, we'll do that too, but it all come together. And so that's what, what, with trying to constantly be healthy is all about from a clinician's perspective. And, and it's a ton of that that's going on. And, and I always like to end with, if you are challenged or you're struggling, just reach out for help. We are here to support you and it is totally fine. Never a weakness to ask for help, it's a strength. been listening to Going Deep, Sports in the 21st Century, from the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio, NPR for Western North Carolina. Tell us what you think of the show by emailing us at goingdeep at bpr.org. Make sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Shoops Going Deep.